0: Episode 74, Simón Bolívar and South American Independence. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. In this episode, we are headed back to South America to take a look at the independence movement that started there in the early 1800s. And the key person we're going to need to talk about is Simon Bolivar. He is kind of the South American version of George Washington. Although, in a way, that comparison kind of sells Bolivar short a bit, because while Washington was one of the founding fathers of the United States, Bolivar was the founding father of South American independence. There's some other differences too. Bolivar had a tendency to want to execute his enemies that we don't really see with Washington, but South American politics are different, and so Bolivar lived and worked in a much different environment. Most scholars today think the comparison is valid, and I agree. South America in 1800 was divided into two basic pieces, right? the Portuguese peace, which would eventually become Brazil, and the rest of the continent, which was held by the Spanish. There were also still a good number of Indian tribes all over the continent, some of which had substantial civilizations. But they were all being threatened by the Spanish or the Portuguese. In this episode, we're going to basically ignore Brazil because all of what's about to happen happens in the Spanish parts of South America, and most notably in Venezuela, Colombia, and Peru. They're basically three Spanish sections of South America, which were known as the Viceroyalty of the Rio de la Plata, which is way down south, where Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay now are. On the west coast, there was the Viceroyalty of Peru, which is basically Peru, Bolivia, and Chile. And then there was the Viceroyalty of New Granada in the north, which was Ecuador, Colombia, and Venezuela. These were called viceroyalties because they were ruled over by a viceroy. who was sort of the same thing as like an earl or a duke. It was like a small kingdom ruled over by a viceroy rather than being ruled over by a king. So instead of a kingdom, it's a viceroyalty. And the viceroy was usually a member of the royal family, or at least a very important Spanish noble. Now of the three, New Granada in the north was the most populous, partly because it was the closest to Spain, and it was also the most developed. But the Viceroyalty of Peru was also incredibly important because of gold and silver mines that were there. The biggest cities at the time in South America were Caracas, on the north shore of Venezuela, with about 30,000 people. Buenos Aires, on the east coast of Argentina, down south, with about 38,000 people. And Lima, Peru, which was inland in Peru, with about 52,000 people. For comparison, at the time, there were about 61,000 people living in Philadelphia and about 60,000 in New York City. So generally speaking, the population in South America was much more spread out than it was along the U.S. East Coast, and the cities were not as large. But there were some impressive cities, big buildings, villas, and churches, and a few cathedrals even. Spanish society was divided into four basic groups. At the bottom were the slaves. But slavery was not as common in Spanish South America as it was in the Caribbean, Brazil, or the U.S. South, and it wasn't all imported Africans that were slaves. There were also a lot of local Indians and people of mixed races that became slaves in South America. Next up the social rung, but not much higher, were the native Indians. Those were mostly ignored by the civilized, so to speak, parts of South America. They lived off by themselves and been driven off of certain pieces of land by the Spanish settlers. The next step up the rung was a group that was composed of mixed-race people or people who had just been born in South America and weren't part of the Spanish nobility. They had some Spanish blood, but they were called Creoles. This group made up most of the middle class and the militia, and at the top of the social heap were the Spanish nobles, and they didn't really mix with the other groups very much except to order them around. Now the nobles, in terms of numbers, were the smallest group but they were also the wealthiest and the ones in the positions of power. The middle class, which was somewhat Spanish but mostly Creole, was growing and there was some free enterprise and people could find ways to succeed in some business and small farming ventures. But I will say, the Industrial Revolution comes a lot later to South America than it came to North America. The chief exports of South America were silver and sugar, though coffee became a big deal later in the 1800s as well. So now we've sort of set the stage for how things are in Spanish South America in the early 1800s. And this brings us to our friend, Simón Bolívar. Bolívar was born in Caracas, Venezuela, on July 24, 1783, just a couple of years before the U.S. ratified the Constitution. He was born into a relatively wealthy Creole family, but his dad died when Simón was just three, And his mom died three years later. He was then raised by his uncle, and that uncle provided Simone with a tutor who exposed Simone to some of the Enlightenment thinkers of the day, including Rousseau, Voltaire, and John Locke. Bolivar also heard about the French Revolution, which he greatly admired. At 16, he was sent back to the mainland, to Spain, to continue his education, which was a big honor. People already recognized his brilliance pretty early on. He was a voracious reader and a hard worker, though not always a hard worker at school. While he was in Spain, he met a young woman named Maria Teresa Rodriguez del Toro y Aliasa, who was three years older than he was, but that did not deter him. After two years of courting and waiting, they married in 1802. Bolivar was then just 18 and she was 21. And that same year, 1802, they sailed back to Caracas together. But Maria contracted yellow fever the next year and died in mid-1803. Bolivar was heartbroken, and he vowed to never marry again, and he never did. Then he went back to Spain again, and he went to France on this trip. He was in Paris in 1804 when Napoleon was crowned emperor, and Bolivar did not like it because of his own sort of republican leanings. After Paris, he went to Italy and then he visited Rome. While in Rome, the story goes, that he visited the Mont Sacré, which was the hill in Rome where the Plebeians had seceded from the Roman Republic back in 494 BC because of the tyranny of the oligarchy. Supposedly, on the Mont Sacré, up on the top of the hill, Bolivar vowed to free South America from Spanish rule. A few years later, In 1807, Bolivar sailed back to the Americas, stopping first in the east coast of the United States before he went back to Venezuela. He visited Charleston, Washington, Philadelphia, New York City, and Boston. In June of 1807, he sailed all the way back to Venezuela, and he began talking with many of the other Creoles there about independence. That was a forbidden topic to talk about at the time, And not many people talked about it openly. In late 1807, though, Napoleon invaded Spain. This news doesn't reach Venezuela until 1808. And then in Venezuela, the locals began to form their own local government. Not sure who was really ruling them. Was it Spain? Was it France? We're not exactly sure. We're going to have our own government. They wanted to be independent of France, but they were still loyal to the deposed Spanish king, Ferdinand VII, but Ferdinand wasn't in power. In 1810, this new local government, which was called the Supreme Junta, took over the control of Venezuela. Supreme Junta sounds like a great name for a massive Taco Bell taco, but junta just means meeting or committee in Spanish, so it was kind of just a group of men modeled after the revolutionary councils in France. Since then, Junta has kind of come to mean any kind of military dictatorship in a Spanish-speaking country, kind of the Spanish version of the French coup d'etat. So, the Caracas Junta sent Bolivar to London to try to drum up some British support for South American independence. But Great Britain didn't want to have anything to do with it. They did not want to anger Spain or France any further, so they refused to help. But in London, Bolivar met with a guy named Francisco de Miranda, who was another Venezuelan who also wanted independence. He was also a wealthy sort of Spanish nobility guy, but he wanted independence. Late in 1810, Miranda and Bolivar sailed back to Venezuela. Once they were back in Venezuela, the various regions of Venezuela came together in their very first Venezuelan Congress, which was held in Caracas. At first, the Congress pledged its allegiance to the deposed Spanish king, Ferdinand, But Bolivar, over the course of the time of the Congress, began to strongly influence the debate and the direction of the Congress over the course of that summer, and discussions began to turn strongly towards independence. On July 5th, 1811, the Congress declared its independence from Spain. Man, they just missed it by one day. Amazing. This created the First Republic of Venezuela, but that wasn't entirely supported throughout Venezuela. Mostly just in Caracas and the surrounding areas. The provinces, the outlying provinces, were still loyal to Spain. And this started a civil war, with the Republican side, that's the part in Caracas, trying to form a republic, and the Royalists, who are the ones who still supported King Ferdinand out in the peripheral areas and out in the out in the countryside. The Royalists, were supported by Spanish troops from other Spanish territories like Puerto Rico, and the Royalists started winning whenever there was a fight. Things were beginning to look grim for the Republicans. Then, in March of 1812, a huge earthquake shook Venezuela, and it almost completely destroyed Caracas. Now, of course, many people pointed to this as a sign that God was displeased with them for declaring independence from their God-ordained king, and this further weakened Republican support. Bolivar, for his part, rushed back to the city, and he helped with rescuing survivors and reorganizing the city, which was in chaos. At one point, the story goes, a resident named José Diaz climbed up on top of the ruins of the cathedral, and he found Bolivar standing there, surveying the damage. According to Diaz, Bolivar said to him, We will fight nature itself if it opposes us and force it to obey. After this, the royalists took over even more territory because Republican support was weakened. And they trapped Bolivar and a small force in a fort near the coast at a town called Puerto Cabello. After a month, Bolivar and some of the men escaped the blockade and they fled to another town. But with the loss of the fort, Miranda, who was back in what was Remaining of Caracas, decided to surrender, much to the disbelief of Bolivar. Bolivar escaped even further and he left Venezuela and took a ship that eventually sailed him over across the border into Cartagena, which is now part of Colombia, but at the time had declared itself a city state within the region of what was then called New Granada. Nuevo Granada, si usted habla español. There, Bolivar was given the command of a group of about 70 men. On paper, he was given this command to be part of the defenses of Cartagena. But Bolivar, being Bolivar, took his men and without orders, marched out of Cartagena to the Magdalena River, which is basically the border between New Granada and Venezuela. And then he worked his way up the river, fighting battle after battle, capturing royalist outposts all the way, and after each battle, adding men to his small army. He was so successful that when he returned, rather than being reprimanded for attacking without orders, he was given control of all of the armies of New Granada. So one of the things that Bolivar learned in this expedition is that the European way of fighting, which was to basically line up in two parallel lines and then shoot at each other and then charge at each other, that's what had happened in like the Revolutionary War in, in the Americas, that wasn't gonna work in the jungles, woods, and steep terrain of northern South America. So he basically began to fight using guerrilla tactics, taking advantage of the royalists' tendencies to still try to fight in the European style. So in May of 1813, now he's the general of all of the new Granada forces, he takes a force of just 650 men and Bolivar goes and invades Venezuela. Now, On paper, this seems like a really horrible idea, doesn't it? We are going to invade an entire country with the goal of conquering it and overthrowing its government. We have 650 men and only 100 horses. I mean, you'd have trouble conquering just my neighborhood with that kind of a crew. But Bolivar quickly defeated several different Spanish forces, all of which were larger than his. And as he went, again, his forces kept growing. After five victories, all of which were pretty one-sided, Bolivar's army was up to a respectable 2,500 soldiers with more than 200 horses. Now, I have to say in a little side here, that as we discuss the upcoming battles of South American independence, the numbers of soldiers is going to be pretty small for most of these battles compared with, say, the battles of the American War of Independence, where many battles were like 10,000 on each side, and the biggest ones were close to like 20,000. And even those are small compared to the battles in Napoleonic Europe, where Napoleon had, at one point, an army over 500,000 men. So South American battles were smaller deals, taking place between you know 650 on one side and 1,000 on the other side. Things like that were very common. And having horses in South America was a huge deal. So while in North America or Europe, the battles had like 10% cavalry, 10% of the soldiers were on horses, the rest were on foot, In South America, some of the battles are going to be almost 100% cavalry on both sides. Everybody's on horse. That's how the Mongols did it, by the way. We mentioned that back in episode 35. Horses make a big difference in the mobility of an army, especially in rough terrain. In fact, in Bolivar's first real big victory, horses played a big part. Outside of the town of Valencia... Bolivar's force, again about 2,500 men, came upon a royalist force that was about 1,200 men. The royalists tried to retreat toward the city, but in the night, Bolivar had two men mount each of the 200 horses, so 400 men, and he sent them around the royalists to cut off their exit. In the morning, the royalists found the road to Valencia blocked, so they turned to fight, but Bolivar's forces easily won that battle, too. So as a new tactic, the royalists began to recruit the cowboys who lived out in the vast southern plains of Venezuela. These cowboys were called llaneros, and the Spanish recruited about 10,000 of them, and the llaneros began to turn the tide back in favor of the royalists. But Bolivar had also recruited some of the llaneros, especially a man named Antonio Jose Paez, and Paez's tactics and experience eventually convinced the rest of the Llaneros to switch sides and join the Republicans. The Llaneros also respected Bolivar. In fact, on one hard campaign, after he had ridden for two days and two nights straight without sleeping, the Llaneros gave Bolivar the nickname Old Ironbottom, which, coming from a group of cowboys, is actually a mark of high respect. So Bolivar and Paez, with the help of the Llaneros, basically took control of most of the territory of Venezuela, although the royalists still held some fortified cities by the north coast. But Bolivar, in a bold and possibly suicidal move, took an army of about 2,500 to the west, and he marched them over the Andes Mountains, a la Hannibal, though without the elephants. They managed to cross the Andes, though they lost a lot of men and supplies. But on the other side, this is down there now where Ecuador and Peru are, They're now fighting over there. They managed to defeat the very surprised Spanish garrisons. On that far west coast, Bolivar won battle after battle again. And in many places in New Granada, the Royalists began to evacuate to other Spanish territories to the north, like Panama. And it became kind of a turning point of the whole revolutionary venture, much like the Battle of Saratoga had been for the Americans. After this, Venezuela and New Granada held a joint congress and declared themselves the Republic of Gran Colombia, which was sort of a super country that included what is now Colombia, Ecuador, and Venezuela. And they made Bolivar president, and they gave him basically dictatorial powers. He and his forces continued to fight the Spanish and royalist forces all over South America, eventually liberating Peru, Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina. Now, according to one estimate that I saw, the fighting for the liberation of South America involved almost 700 distinct battles, though many of those were, as I mentioned, rather small. But in the end, by 1825, all of South America was now free of Spanish rule. And at first, for a little while, Bolivar had a sort of dictatorial control of all of it. But soon, fighting amongst the differing regions led most of them to declare their own independence from Gran Colombia as well. This process of splitting up eventually left South America with most of the distinct countries that we know today. So starting in the north, and I'm just looking at the Spanish countries here, right, not the other ones, and going sort of from the north, going counterclockwise around the continent. We have in the north Venezuela, Colombia, then Ecuador, Peru. Bolivia, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay. All of these became independent countries, and they all claimed Bolivar as their liberator. Bolivia is actually named after him, Bolivia Bolivar. For a time, after all these countries were liberated, Bolivar kept working, trying to consolidate them into one big country, or at least into some kind of confederation, but none of the countries really wanted that, so they remained separate and independent. Bolivar, for himself, ended up staying in Venezuela and trying to help it rebuild and reunify, but there was a lot of political infighting and resistance, and some actual physical resistance, too. Some of that came from Bolivar's sort of dictatorial position and his very bossy way of doing things. But other people admired him for that bossy way of doing things, so it was kind of a six of one, half a dozen of the other. Some people liked it because he was in charge or trying to be. Other people hated it because he was sort of a dictator. In September of 1828, a group of young men tried to stage an assassination of Bolivar, and they came very, very close. One of Bolivar's aides managed to misdirect the men in the building that they were all in and gave Bolivar time to climb out of a window and escape. He spent the night hiding under a bridge until some of his loyal soldiers found him. But Bolivar, tired of all the intrigue and all the resistance and with his health beginning to fail, Bolivar resigned from the presidency in 1830. He planned to go into exile in England where he had friends, but before he could set sail, he got sicker. Apparently, he had contracted tuberculosis, which is highly contagious, and ships wouldn't let people with tuberculosis on board the ship. It's sort of like airplanes and COVID, except that tuberculosis isn't a made up disease. So in December of 1830, Simón Bolivar died in a town near the Venezuelan coast. His legacy in South America is kind of a combination of the legacies of Washington, Jefferson, Adams, and Franklin in America. He is seen as the foremost statesman and general of South American independence. And he's also seen, like Franklin, as kind of the ideal of what a free South American should be. Proud, idealistic fiercely patriotic, and maybe a bit bombastic and outspoken. The countries of South America, for their part, have all since then had a series of dictatorial regimes as their rulers down through the years, and a lot of instability in some of those countries. Venezuela, for example, has struggled with a massive economic downturn in recent years due to disastrous mismanagement by its current socialist dictatorial government. Colombia has had trouble with the drug lords who live up in the jungles and the steep valleys of northern Colombia, and they grow cocoa and refine that into cocaine, and that has made them incredibly wealthy and also destabilized the government. Other South American countries have struggled with dictators and have had bad government for many, many years. In some ways, the legacy of Spanish colonization in all of South and Central America is a legacy of this kind of instability and bad government, which is an interesting contrast to the legacy of British colonization. Now, I'm not claiming that either of them was good at colonizing and that it should have been colonizing, but the British always managed to create enough of a local governmental infrastructure in the lands that they colonized that once the locals got tired of the British and threw them off, the locals still had a viable model to follow for effective government at least in most places. They did better at that than the Spanish did anyway. Well, speaking of England and Spain, it's time for us to go back to Europe for an episode and take a look at some of the fallout in Europe from the Napoleonic Wars. Join me next episode when we take a look at the Congress of Vienna.